The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Now, if you would, and let's go to the 25th chapter of Exodus in the Old Testament. Today we return to the Old Testament scriptures and our study of Christ in the worship of the tabernacle. Today in the message, I'll preach to you the gospel of Christ from these Old Testament scriptures. And that's not an unusual way to preach the gospel. This is what Jesus did. It's what his disciples did. It's what John the Baptist used as he preached because that's all they had, the Old Testament scriptures. And so they had to point to Christ from the Old Testament. And you do remember that when Christ arose from the dead, that he met two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the Bible tells us that he expounded all the scriptures that told about him. And of course, he was speaking of what the Old Testament says about him. During the Christmas holidays, uh, during the entire month of December and the New Year's sermon, we, we looked at how Christ is found in the Old Testament scriptures using the worship of the model or the worship model of the tabernacle, I explained that there is no difference in the way that people were saved in the Old Testament as and to the way that we are saved today in New Testament times. Both periods are dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ. And so that is the same as saying that salvation under the Old Covenant The Old Covenant in the Old Testament, salvation was the same as it is today under the New Covenant. Both covenants teach that we're saved by the mercy and the grace of God, that we are saved by grace through faith alone in the blood of Jesus Christ and the redemption that he purchased by his death on the cross of Calvary. The only difference there is in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the viewpoint of salvation. They were looking forward to the time when the Messiah would come, and we look backwards to the time that Christ, uh, since the Christ, has come to us. Now, the two different time periods are differentiated not by differences in salvation, but differences in covenants. Under the Old Covenant, God established a relationship with one people, one nation that he chose for his own. And of course, that was Israel. And God gave Israel his law on stone tablets, and he promised that he would save them. He never said that the law that he gave was intended to be their salvation, and it couldn't be because they couldn't keep God's law. The Old Covenant had animal sacrifices that temporarily removed sin, and the people were dependent upon the administration of priests to make these sacrifices for them. Under the New Covenant, God expanded his people to include all races, ethnicities, and nationalities, and he promised to write his laws upon the heart. 
So we don't concern ourselves with stone tablets today. God said, I will write my laws upon the heart. And that's what we just read a few moments ago in Hebrews chapter 10. And so to us, the law of God is internal and our sins are removed permanently by the blood of Christ. And we have access to God not because we need a man to be our priest, but because each believer is a priest. And we have access to the Father by faith. In other words, there is no priest that stands between us and God. We don't need to go to a man to confess our sins or have him to go to God for us. We go directly to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the reason that a few moments ago I would say let's bow our heads and silently confess our sins. I can say that because you don't need me to do that for you. You can go directly to God. You can speak to God because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, we're talking about covenants, and when a covenant is made between two parties, we would generally consider that this is a bilateral agreement. It's a bilateral agreement that both parties will keep the terms and conditions of the covenant, and that keeps the covenant stable and in effect. But when we talk about the covenant that God made with his people, this is not true. That is, it's not a bilateral covenant. I want you to listen to this explanation in Baker's Evangelical Dictionary. They write, God initiated, determined the elements, and confirmed his covenant with humanity. It is unilateral. Persons are recipients, not contributors. They are not expected to offer elements to the bond. They are called to accept it as offered, to keep it as demanded, and to receive the results that God, by oath, assures will not be withheld. There you see, as they said, God's covenant is not bilateral. It can only work as a unilateral agreement because we are incapable of keeping treaty with God. Now, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 4, Paul quoted from the Old Testament scriptures. He quoted from Genesis chapter 15 and verse number 6. And there it says that Abraham was justified, not justified I should say, by the good works that he did. And he was not justified by what he contributed to the covenant that God made with him. But he was justified because he believed God. And his faith was counted for righteousness. So it was God who made the covenant, and it is God who keeps the covenant. In Galatians 3, verse 6, Paul said the same. He said, Abraham was justified by faith. And then he said, it is evident that no person is justified by keeping commandments. He said, the just shall live by faith. And so it's established that salvation is the same under both covenants. It was the same to Abraham as it was to Paul. The covenant is unilateral. The old and the new teach that salvation is only by the grace of God through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So this means that Christ saves, and he saves the same way, saved people in the Old Testament, the same way that he saves people in the New Testament. Therefore... 
if you're staying with my logic here, therefore, if Christ is the one who saves and people are saved in the Old Testament as they are saved today, then Christ must be found in the Old Testament. And Christ must be there from the beginning of the creation. He must be there to save Adam. He must be there to save Abel. He must be there to save Noah. He must be there to save Abraham and Moses and David and every person in the Old Testament who was a believer. So thousands of years before the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, he was here. And if not, Old Testament Israel or anyone else could never be saved. Now, when God made Israel a nation, he gave them his law at Mount Sinai and coupled with the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain was a system of worship that was known as tabernacle worship. And in this worship system, there was an abundance of symbols that represented Jesus Christ. Now, in case there's someone here who doesn't know about the tabernacle, uh, we're just talking about a very elaborate tent that was used for the performance of Israel's religious rituals. This is where sacrifices were made as they made their journey from Egypt to the promised land. That took place for 40 years. For 40 years of that wandering, they, they worshipped by bringing sacrifices to the tabernacle. And then for another 500 years after they entered the promised land until the temple was built, they still used this tabernacle as the place to offer their sacrifices. This worship system was filled with emblems, with symbols that demonstrated the beauty the perfection, the power, and the holiness of Jesus Christ. Now, we discussed this, and it was good that we did, because the focus of Berean's ministry is the exaltation of Christ. As Scripture says, every knee shall bow to him, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what we call worship. Well, after we finish the short series on the Christ of the Covenants, we return to our study of worship in the church. And today, we're going back to the Old Testament, and I want to speak to you on a new subject, or a related subject, which is the communion in the covenant. This is our fellowship and our worship of God and how it is accomplished. Now, I've spoken to you of, uh, about how tabernacle worship was Trinitarian. Jesus Christ is the central figure in the tabernacle. But the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are also taught in the tabernacle and taught throughout the Old Testament scriptures. So today, we're going to talk about communion with God, and we will speak of God the Father as he is worshipped in the tabernacle. And then we're going to follow up after that with a series about the Holy Spirit and how he was recognized in tabernacle worship. So our study this week and for two more weeks will be about the mercy seat, which is the lid on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a box and it had a lid that covered and concealed the contents that were put into the box. This lid is called the mercy seat. 
And it is the place where God's presence was revealed and was the place of communion with God. Now we next have a picture of the mercy seat. And it was a lid, to be sure, uh, but no one has seen a box and no one has seen a lid like this. There was no box or a lid ever made that was like this. The significance of its symbolisms uh, regarding the redemption of God's people, it's, it's really beyond our ability to fully comprehend. When God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle, he started with the most significant parts And that was the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat. These were the first because they were the first in importance. There was nothing that was done on the outside of the tabernacle, nothing done on the inside that had anything to support the symbolisms, if not for this mercy seat and the activity of the priests in the presence of God. It was at the mercy seat that God promised that he would meet with his people. And we see this in our text of Exodus 25, verses 17 through 22. So if you'll look at your Bible, Exodus chapter 25 and verse number 17, it says, And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall she make shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And I'll stop there for just a minute. If you're interested in these cherubims, we have in this uh, two weeks coming up some information about these cherubims, if you want to know some more about that. Verse number 21, And thou shalt put the mercy seat above the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there... I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. In tabernacle worship, there were many, many sacrifices made. Every week throughout the year, there were sacrifices. These were categorized according to their purpose. And so we find that there were five sacrifices, five types of sacrifices that were made. There were burnt offerings, and there were food offerings. There were peace offerings, and sin offerings, and trespass offerings. Of all the sacrifices that were made during the year, the most important ones were the ones that they did on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was Israel's highest and most holy day. And this is when the high priest would go into the tabernacle's most sacred room. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was called the most holy place. And there the priest would put the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. This was done on only one day of the year. The Day of Atonement was the only time of the entire year that the priest could enter this room. And he was there to make a yearly sacrifice 
for his sins, an offering for his sins, and then for the sins of the people. The mercy seat is the place where God said that he would meet with his people. Well, God is a spirit, and he doesn't have a physical form, and so his presence was seen in a brilliant light. This light we refer to today as the Shekinah. And it was in this brilliant light of the Shekinah that God was present. Now, you can search your Bible through, and you won't find the word Shekinah. That's not in the Bible. It's a word that was used by uh, Jewish historians to describe the dwelling of God or the presence of God in light. Now, of course, we know that God is always present. God is not confined to a space. All of God is everywhere. The fullness of God is everywhere all of the time. At the same time, God was present in the cloud that rose over the tabernacle during the daytime. At night, that cloud became a pillar of fire, and God was in that fire. It showed that God was protecting them and that God was resident, so to speak, in the Holy of Holies. So there was this small light of his glory that was hovering over the mercy seat. There isn't a tabernacle or a temple that can hold the immensity of God. God doesn't live in temples that are made with hands, but he did make his presence visible in this place above the mercy seat. Now once again, the mercy seat is the flat part on top of the ark. On each side, you see that there is a cherub. These were figures of angels that were made of gold. They faced each other with their wings outstretched and touching at the tips. Now in our picture, we can see the priest dipping his finger into a basin of blood, and he's ready to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And that glowing light that you see is the presence of God in the Shekinah. God met with his people in this place. But what he didn't do, he didn't permit every Israelite to go into the tabernacle. Only the high priest could go in, and he went in as a representative of the people. He represented them before God. He was there for them to do what God required for them. He was the intermediary. He was the one who made atonement for them. Atonement, that's just a word that means a covering, it means satisfaction. So the high priest communed with God through the satisfaction of a blood sacrifice. And this is the same way that God meets with us today. The Old Testament high priest was emblematic of our great high priest who is Jesus Christ. And what Jesus does is to represent us to God the Father. He is our mediator through which God gives us the permission to approach. Hebrews calls him our great high priest who is passed into heaven. And so today, Jesus Christ is in heaven in the presence of God for us. Communion with God can take place only in Jesus Christ. That, folks, is an axiom of the Christian religion. Christianity is not Christianity without this. The number one requirement to have a relationship with God is to know Jesus Christ. 
There is no communion with God without him. Only by his blood are we reconciled to God. Now, the Old Testament picture of the mercy seat and God's communion with Israel is the power behind Jesus' statement in the New Testament in which he said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. As I said, it is an axiom of the Christian religion that we have no access to God without Jesus Christ. And that means every religion in the world. Christianity, of course, is the only one that allows access because of Jesus Christ, but there is no one who has a God that they can access a true God if they're not coming through Jesus Christ. And they must know who the true God is. So when Moses came down from Mount Sinai... His face was glowing with the glory of God. He brought the two tablets of the law that were etched with the finger of God. And that sight was stunning and it was frightening so much that the people said, We do not want to speak with God. They were too afraid to speak with God. And so they asked Moses to be the mediator to speak to God for them. And truly, the law that he brought down to them was frightening without a mediator. Now, the scope of my message today is not to examine all of the implications of the law, but we do need to recognize how Paul described it. He said that the law condemns. He said that the law has nothing in it that will save us. He said that God did not give a law that could give us righteousness. He said the law kills Now, Paul didn't understand that truth until he was saved on the road to Damascus. He thought, like many people today, that they could live in the law. He thought he could live in the law. In fact, he thought he did a pretty good job of keeping the law. And most people today think that as well. Paul thought that he did quite well keeping God's law. But when we get to the book of Romans, we see what Paul says there and he knew much better than that. That instead of living in the law, he said, these commandments that God gave, they killed me. When he understood them, it made him recognize his helplessness apart from the grace of God. Now, in our study of the Ark of the Covenant, you remember that Moses put the two tablets of the law inside the Ark. The mercy seat covered these two tablets and kept them from view. Blood was sprinkled on top of the mercy seat as a covering and it signified that the law can do nothing for us apart from the blood of Christ. There's none of us that can be saved by anything we do. We continually disobey God's commandments and what that does is to stir up God's wrath against us. There is nothing that we can do to turn away God's anger. We are under the just punishment of God's law. We justly deserve its condemnation. The only escape from this judgment is the mercy that is granted by God through the application of a blood sacrifice. And that blood is the blood of Jesus. Now, in this sacred room, law and grace came together. Law and grace come together at the mercy seat. The proper relationship between law and grace is maintained. The law does nothing for us but this. 
It reveals our hopelessness. The law says to us, don't come here. If you are expecting any help, do not come here. But then it points us to the one who is our only hope. And this is the reason that Paul said the law is our schoolmaster. The law is our teacher to lead us to Christ. The law teaches us to go to Christ. He's the only one who can deliver us from the condemnation of the law. The only one is Jesus. Now it's truly remarkable how these symbolisms in the Old Testament are perfect pictures of what God would do in the New Testament under the New Covenant. Christ came to satisfy every demand of the law and to take that condemnation of the law away from us. And so we live in the grace of God's salvation given to us through the instrument of faith in Christ. Now, as we consider this astounding communion with God, I think first that we need to consider worship. We must come to God in the reverence of worship. Now, I I know that you thought that we were done with worship two weeks ago. We are never done with worship. And so I ask, what is the foundation of our worship? Today, we're going to spend our time on one major topic. And you may think, well, your time's almost done. Well, no, it's not. (laughs) It's going to be a while. Uh, We're going to spend our time on one major point, the approach for worship. Before entering the Holy of Holies, the high priest had been to the brazen altar that was on the outside in the courtyard. An animal sacrifice was made there, and the priest collected the blood of the sacrifice and put it into a basin. And then he went into the tabernacle in full dress, the full dress of the high priest, which were beautiful garments, The Bible describes in that way they are beautiful garments representing the splendor of Christ and his work. Now first he he took the sacrificial blood to the altar of incense. This is the altar that stood just before the curtain that kept the Ark of the Covenant from view. And standing there at this altar, he placed the blood on each of the horns at the four corners. Now, we see the priest doing this in our picture. There, you see, is in his special, beautiful garments as he performed this first necessary step which showed the power of intercession through the blood. This is what the altar of incense was about. It was about intercession, the intercession that Christ makes for us. So we put the blood on the horns of the altar And behind that curtain that you see where those uh, emblems of cherubim are, right behind that curtain is the Ark of the Covenant, and there is the mercy seat. And what the priest would do next is to push aside this curtain to enter the Holy of Holies. Our next picture shows the priest pushing aside the curtain. Now, do you notice that something has changed with the priest? Before, he was in his beautiful garments, Now his clothing has changed. He doesn't wear the multicolored, beautiful robes that he was wearing before, but now he has on a very simple clothing that is all white. This is the white linen robe that you see, a white linen hat that he wears, and a white linen belt that went around the waist that held the robe together, which you actually can't see there. But these were plain clothes that were all in white, and that shows purity and holiness. 
In the scriptures, white stands for righteousness and holiness. And I might add that the approach to God in worship must be in purity, respecting the holiness of God. And so in our worship services, before I preach, that is before God speaks to us in the message, we pray and confess our sins so that our worship is not hindered by unholiness. Now as the priest went in, he took a bowl of blood and he had a censer in his hand and he pushed the curtain aside to open up the way to God. The smoke of the incense filled the room and it was to shield him from the intensity of God's glory. The smoke would create a cloud in this small room and the priest could only see close up to the ark to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Now our picture Shows, if we'll go to the next picture, our picture shows the light of God's glory. Do we have one? There, let's, let's roll all the way back for just a little bit and find it. There we go. Let's go to that one. In our picture, we, we see there, um, the light of God's glory. We, we see that and we see the priest as he's about to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And I think though, it's consistent for us to understand that there must be cloudy smoke in that room, and this was the purpose of the censer, so that it would shield him from the glory of God. You remember when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the, the commandments and to talk with God, that God shielded him from his glory. Moses could not see the full glory of God. So I do believe that the priest must be shielded uh, from the glory that's in this room. And so that's what the smoke of the incense was for. So all of this, all of these steps were necessary to permit the priest to enter. And he must follow these instructions precisely. This shows us that God has his way of worship. And we learned this, didn't we? We talked about God has a way of worship. And we must be very careful to respect God's way of worship. And that we do not come irreverently into God's presence, which I believe we often do. Now, I know that, that most people like the informality of Baptist worship. We're not high church by any means. We don't have a formal liturgy. But I do respect some who have a, a more formal liturgy than we have, and I think that we would do well to consider the seriousness of worship. Years ago, I, I expressed my distaste for flag-waving ceremonies in the church. And this is the reason that I moved our flags. They used to stand behind me on the platform. I moved our flags from off the platform to the, the corner over here. I did that because I didn't think that flag-waving in our country was the purpose that, we're at, that we are here. Now, I, I think that we should respect our community. I certainly do. I, I do respect our flag. I think that every Christian ought to have respect for our country and for our leaders, even though they're not the, sometimes the leaders that we want. But we have to respect that because this is the great country in which we live that God has given us. And it's God who sets up kings and it's God who takes down kings. And I think that we ought to respect all of that. I love our country, I respect it, but I don't believe that church services are intended to show patriotism to our country. The church is not the place to celebrate politics or patriotism or to applaud first responders. 
I mean, thank the Lord for policemen that risk their lives to defend an ungrateful public. Thank the Lord for that. Thank the Lord for firefighters who, who go into uh, forest fires selflessly to protect our homes from being burned down. Thank the Lord for that. We respect them and we honor them, but we don't do it in here. This place is for worshiping God. So I don't really like a circus atmosphere that goes on in some churches. I don't like prizes given to people. I don't like dollar bills taped under seats to draw a crowd. And those are methods that are used in some Baptist churches. And I can talk about Baptist if I want without anybody complaining, I hope, because here we are, a Baptist church. So I'll say, we're not going to do that. We are here for Christ. And all of our attention should be on him. And so I'm just saying I think that we ought to be more careful about what we do in worship services. How do we approach God in worship? Is there a mechanical means to approach God? Many believe that there is, and they still use mechanical means. They'll use the mechanical means like incense. Some have their rituals. Some have their formalities of kneeling and receiving a, a wafer of communion on their tongue. These and many other mechanical means are used. But I think the Bible shows us that types and figures are mostly in the past under the new covenant. Christ came to fulfill the law. And so we no longer need to preserve ceremonies. Now, there are only two under the new covenant that the church is told to observe. These are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Unlike the understanding of many, we Baptists believe that these ceremonies, ordinances, are symbolic. That there is no grace dispensed in participating in the ordinances. We observe them because of grace, but we don't obtain grace through them. They're done in symbolism of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's what baptism is. And then there's the Lord's Supper. And in the Supper, which is what I want to talk about now, there is a closer connection to the priest approach in the Old Testament. There are two elements in the Lord's Supper. So let me connect these two elements to the symbolisms in the tabernacle. The first is bread. In the communion, Bread represents the body of Christ. Paul said, the bread which we break, is it not the communion? Is it not the communion of Christ? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, if you eat this bread unworthily, you are guilty of the body of Christ. And so the body of Christ is referenced in the New Testament ordinance. Now, in the tabernacle... The priest approached the curtain, that is the veil, and pushed it aside to enter. What does that veil say to us? What does it say in these New Testament times? Well, it says that we approach God through the body of Christ. Now, the priest didn't understand the symbolism of this curtain as we do today. He couldn't see what the symbol stood for because there isn't a place in the Old Testament where it is explained. The meaning of the veil is found in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. This is what we read a few minutes ago in Hebrews chapter 10. So let me return there for just a moment. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 19, 
Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So Hebrews clarifies the meaning that the only approach to the mercy seat is through the veil, which represents the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the flesh of his incarnation. He must have a body to die. He must have a body that is used as a sacrifice. Now, curiously, this was spoken in the Old Testament, but not until after Moses' time. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10. If you turn your Bibles there, the author of Hebrews quotes from the Psalms, which he interprets and relates to the incarnation of Christ and the receiving of a body for sacrifice. Starting in verse number 4 of Hebrews 10, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he, that is Christ, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. Now he's quoting from Psalm 40. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. The volume of the book refers to the Old Testament and maybe more specifically to the laws that were given by Moses. The volume of the book it is written of me. He says, Then I said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first. That means he takes away all of the ceremonies. He takes away all those Old Testament ceremonies that he may establish the second. This is the new covenant. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Levitical offerings could never take away sin. Now let me explain the terminology. Levitical offerings are those that are made by Aaron and the priests who were descendants of Jacob's son Levi. All of the priests came from the tribe of Levi. Levitical offerings or Aaronic offerings could not take away sin. And so there was a sacrifice needed that could take away sin permanently. And thus Jesus Christ came into the world to abolish all the Old Testament animal sacrifices and to make himself this eternal sacrifice for sin. Now the priest didn't know all of these connections when he pushed aside the veil, but God certainly knew them, and God knew what he would do with his son. And then we may be able to see that pushing aside the veil may have reference to the New Testament in another place, and that would be in Matthew 27, that when Christ died, the veil in the temple was torn in two. That is, when his physical body was torn, that which the veil represents, when his physical body was torn, then the symbol had to be torn as well. As well, So the type yielded to the antitype, which is the actual body of Christ. Now today, in these New Testament times, we're not talking about a high priest, 
At least not an earthly high priest. We're not talking about a priest that we need to go to. Because as I have said, all believers are priests. We are priests and we pass freely through the body of Christ to go to the Father. Now unfortunately, Roman Catholicism builds its priesthood on the Old Testament model. And that's one of the reasons why you see all the special clothing and so forth, which in effect denies the work of the incarnation and the finished work of crucifixion. And it's very strange that they, that they would do this since they place so much emphasis on the crucifix. But the problem is their Christ is still on the cross and their priests have not passed through the veil. Roman Catholicism's doctrine can't stand up to the symbolisms of the tabernacle. And this is because the priests in that church stand as mediators between the people and God. When the New Testament very clearly says under the New Covenant, there is only one mediator, and that is Jesus Christ. So you don't need any man to go to Christ for you. You are a believer priest if you've trusted Christ as your Savior. You only need faith in him to enable you to come into the presence of God. Well, the second element of communion is the juice that's in the cup. This represents the blood of Christ. So secondly, we approach God through the blood of Christ. Jesus said the drink, the fruit of the vine, represents his blood. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant are connected to the offering of blood and the symbolism of blood. Now, if you're still there in Hebrews chapter 10, just turn back a page to the ninth chapter. And in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 6, it says, Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, and that means the first compartment of the tabernacle, He went into the first part where the altar of incense was that we saw a moment ago, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second, that's where the ark was and the mercy seat was, but into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and the heirs of of the people. So the priest could not enter this second compartment which is the holy of holies, the most holy place. He cannot enter there without blood. That is a non-negotiable requirement. Now, the symbolism of blood is, of course, closely related to the body since the blood stands for death. The primary inference of blood is death. And so when the blood is shed, that means the body is dead because the blood has been poured out. So God demanded bloodshed to leave no mistake that Jesus was dead on the cross. When they buried him, they buried a dead body. The life is in the blood, and so when the blood is taken out, then the sacrifice taken out, so that means the sacrifice is dead. We are not to assume that the blood of Jesus was mystical. It wasn't divine blood. That is, it was not God's blood. It was human blood. God does not have blood. God is a spirit. Blood belongs to the physical nature. It belongs to the incarnation. And thus, 
Jesus' blood was human blood. And to say otherwise would be to say that Christ was not truly 100% man. He was. And the blood that flowed through his body was human blood. He was a man. He was flesh. It was the blood of a man, the blood of the human Jesus. And when the priest brought in the blood, it was to show that the animal was killed. It was dead. Again, the life is in the blood. And so likewise, when the blood flowed out of Jesus' body, it was to show that the incarnate Son of God was dead. And he must die in this way. There is no other way that he could die that would satisfy the types of Scripture. So in speaking of figures and symbols, the literal carrying of blood into heaven doesn't stand necessary as a component of redemption. Now, unfortunately, that's often misunderstood, and we may be accused of saying that the blood of Christ is not necessary. We strongly deny that is our position. It is unquestionably necessary that blood was shed because it's the proof that God required of the death of his son. There are many ways that people can die. Cut out his heart and bring that for sacrifice. Someone might say cut off his head like they did John the Baptist. Cut off his head and bring that as a sacrifice. God never required the heart of an animal at the mercy seat. God never said bring a head to the mercy seat. In fact, there's nothing of the animal that gets in there but the blood that's brought for the offering. The blood must be shed. And the blood of Jesus Christ was the only part of him that stood good for our atonement. So if you wonder, could Christ die from a blow to a head to the head? The answer would be no. Could he die from a lightning strike? Well, no. Could he be strangled? No. In fact, strangulation was strictly forbidden by the Levitical law. Could he have COVID and die? No. Blood is the requirement. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That means forgiveness. There is no forgiveness of sin. Now, to say then that the blood stands for death is not a compromise with theological liberals. We stand where we have always stood, believing in the necessity of the blood atonement. Now, to drill down in the symbolism, the blood was brought into the holiest place and sprinkled on the mercy seat. Now, let's look at 1 John chapter 2. I'll have it on the screen for you, and we'll see some New Testament connections. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says, And he, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Not for our sins, that means only, that means Jews, but for the sins of the whole world, also Gentiles. Propitiation is the form of the same word translated mercy seat in Hebrews 9, verse 5. The mercy seat is the place of satisfaction. And this is what propitiation means. It means satisfaction to God for our sins. So in other words, Christ himself is the mercy seat. He made himself the mercy seat to satisfy God. Now, there are other doctrines that are involved, such as imputation, but as the author of Hebrews once said, we don't have time to speak on that subject now. The priest brought the blood, and with his finger, he sprinkled it seven times. 
Beneath the mercy seat, hidden away and out of view, were the stone tablets of the law. They were put there as Moses was told to do. And the law beneath the mercy seat in the ark is not incidental. There's a definite purpose for doing this. The law is the foundation of justice. It is for exoneration or condemnation. Now for us, it is the second. It is condemnation. But because of Christ and his perfection, the law is his exoneration. He kept every commandment perfectly. He proved that he was from God. And we are exonerated through him, through faith in him, by his perfect life that stands good for our imperfect life. Now, the importance of this is, is as, re, as remarked earlier, that, that Christ shields the law from God's view. The law would condemn us if not for the blood on the mercy seat. So all that God sees is what Christ did for us. He doesn't see us in sin. He sees us in Christ. And so we would never want to come to God with our efforts. We don't want to come with sacraments. We, we don't want to come to God with penance as additions to Christ's work. And the reason that we don't is because all of that invites God to inspect us, not Christ. I don't want God to inspect me. I know how sinful I am. I know how wicked I can be. So I want him to see Christ instead of me. If we want to be justified by the law, we're debtors to keep the whole of it and do it perfectly. God would judge us on that criterion. And to this, Christ would say, why in the world would you want to do that? Why would you do that? I've got this thing covered you don't want to bring your stuff and put it on the mercy seat. Now, sometimes people are convicted in a court of law because they say too much. They want to add too much to their defense, and so they just open the door to questions that never need to be asked. And I can tell you that attempting to exonerate yourself before God is bringing or saying one word too much. It will kill you. So keep your stuff off the mercy seat because it only exposes you to the wrath of God. Well, I'm, I'm finishing up now so you can rest easy. Further, there's another beautiful picture of the sufficiency of Christ's blood. His blood is protection. If nothing stands between you and the law, that it's between you and the commandments and God's judgment through them, you are doomed. You do not want to contend with the law. It will crush you. You don't want to get into the ring with the law. It's the blood that protects you. And this is graphically displayed in another of Israel's great sacrifices. This was not on the Day of Atonement. This one was made earlier in the year, not in the seventh month, which is the month of the Great Day of Atonement, but in the first month, Israel began their year with this sacrifice. On the 14th day of the first month, the Passover sacrifice was made. And it was a sacrifice where blood was used. The Passover commemorated the 10th plague on Egypt. It was the death of the firstborn. I'm sure you're familiar with that. 
We could just as easily say that the blood applied was the protection of the firstborn for those that properly observed Passover. Now, we tend to think that the, the nine plagues on Egypt were unsuccessful. They were bogus. And that God hadn't yet hit on the right formula. So God thought it over, and he came up with a surefire tenth plague, and then he finally got it right. Now, unfortunately, that would be an Arminian retelling of the story. The truth is that God was successful in each of those first nine plagues. He accomplished precisely what he intended to do. He defeated every Egyptian god before he delivered the crushing blow. Now, do you remember, as God sent the plagues, in every one it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He hardened him so that he would not let the people go. Pharaoh was hardened so that he was sure not to let them go before there was a tenth plague. And we would have to ask, would there have been a Passover if there had been a tenth plague? What if Pharaoh had let them go on the first one, or the second one, or the third one, or the fourth one? He didn't. It took ten. If he let them go sooner, then Israel would remember the Exodus by celebrating the Feast of Frogs, or the Feast of Lice, or the Feast of Flies, or the Feast of Boils. What would that do to the types and figures of Christ? There would be no Passover lamb. First Corinthians says that Christ is our Passover. And this question is asked, was God unjust to harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, Paul answers that question in Romans 9, 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. God did not intend that Pharaoh would let the people go until he crushed Egypt and all their gods. He beat Pharaoh down in every conceivable way to show his power over him. Well, Pharaoh was a vile man. And not only did God lead Israel out, but he led Pharaoh out to destroy him and his army in the Red Sea. So Israel would never worry about Pharaoh changing his mind again. Well, after nine plagues, it was time for the worst on Egypt. God would demonstrate deliverance by showing he was Israel's salvation. The tenth plague was devastating. And, and it would have destroyed every firstborn child in Egypt, all of them, if God hadn't protected Israel. So how did he do it? It was by blood. He told them to kill a lamb to strike the blood, put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses. Now, the lintel, that is the support beam above the door. It holds the weight of the, of the house as it crosses the open space of the door, and the doorposts are the pillars for the lintel. Now, you can just think about that for a little bit, the significance of putting it on the lintel and on the doorpost, how important that is. They were to go into the house under the blood, and that night the death angel came throughout all of Egypt. All the houses without blood would be visited by this angel and the firstborn would die. The blood applied was the protection from the death angel. Now to keep our analogy alive, Arminians would peek out the door and they would strike at the death angel with a broom handle and they would smear blood on every door on seven continents to see if it would work. They aren't sure that it will. 
depends on how much the people in the houses are willing to do. But the truth is, we can't fight death angels to help God. Is that the Bible's story of God's power of protection? No. That way never works because God does not share credit with anybody. You crack open the door and try to help, then there is no protection. The death angel gets in. Well, you and I know this. This is our doctrine. We will not help Jesus do anything. The covenant is unilateral. God does it all. And we we certainly don't accept any criticism that we don't think the blood of Jesus is important. No, we plead nothing but the blood. We dare not plead anything but the blood. And certainly not our will to make anything happen. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So this is the approach of worship. The priest must have blood to take with him into God's presence. He dared not go in without it. And he dared not go in with anything else. Just as he couldn't wear the beautiful, colorful garments because he thought, oh, this will look so much better. I'll be so spiffy in those when I appear before God. No, he couldn't do that. He dared not change any requirement that God accepts. The mercy seat is about Jesus Christ. The mercy seat is about what Christ did. In that room of the Holy of Holies, the triune sovereign God rules. He doesn't need help. He doesn't need law keepers. He doesn't need man's work to make redemption work. He doesn't need anyone's approval or their cooperation. The covenant is unilateral. God never says, don't let me interfere with your way. He doesn't say, don't let me step on your will. No, when the priest came in, he was at God's mercy. God waits for no one. God asks no one. He does what he wills in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Ask Pharaoh if that's true. And if you get the opportunity to ask Pharaoh, then you probably miss the meaning of worship through Christ's body and his blood. This is the way to communion with God the Father. We can't approach him any other way except through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that we see in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that is the only way of our salvation. Help us, Lord, to preach this message, to keep on preaching it. The world wants to be justified by its own means. The world makes every person the center of their own universe. Help us to understand that our attention must be focused solely on Jesus Christ and what he did for the redemption of our sins. Help us, Father, to understand these truths and relay them to others who need to hear them. Bless our people today. We thank you again for attendance and thank you for listening, those who listen to the word of God today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 
584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.